You're listening to The Creator's Channel. Hey everyone, welcome to The Creator's Channel. My name is Chris Kelly with ProductionCrate.com and today I am joined by Michael Shanks. Michael is a director, a visual effects artist. Michael does some composing. You probably know him for his series Wizards of Oz and his shorts Rebooted and um, I want to say Time Capsule, but... Uh, time Trap. Time Trap, which I absolutely love. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. So I do want to get into the shorts and the series and, and dig really deep on how you pulled all that stuff off. But first off, what is your day-to-day work like? I know you have Timpton Fed, which is your YouTube channel, and then you have Late Night Films, which is more like the production company side. Yeah, so... <clears throat> I mean, my my day-to-day, as you've kind of uh, hinted at, I I wear a lot of hats in production. I don't wear many cool Craters Rock hats such as yourself. Uh, uh, (laughs) I'll send you uh, one. So so my, oh, that'd be great. My my day-to-day changes a lot depending on what project uh, is going on. So at the moment, uh, which is kind of luckily coinciding with COVID, I'm just on a big writing tear. So my day-to-day at the moment is, is waking up, looking at a script, not getting much done on the script, walking around the house for nine hours and then kind of jamming in, you know, a couple of, a uh, couple of pages right at the end. Mm-hmm. But, uh, otherwise, uh, otherwise, yeah, you know, I, I work kind of freelance visual effects as visual effects for myself, but you know, predominantly I am a, a writer director and all the other stuff uh, like visual effects and composing and editing is to like supplant my ability to create, uh, those sorts of productions because working in the uh, very kind of independent guerrilla film world, <clears throat> You're constantly at uh, the behest of other people's time and other people's effort. So you're constantly trying to get people to uh, jump on board your ship to, to come and help you steer this project uh, into port. I've been playing some Sea of Thieves. I don't know. I'm having all these shipping <laughs> um, And so by uh, wearing as many hats as possible, that's just less people to convince. That's less people to pay. It, it's, it's, it makes it uh, easier to, to get uh, kind of maybe more... Uh, extravagant productions uh, mm-hmm. over the line at a very indie indie world. So, I mean, I, I always assume that on the side you're doing maybe more corporate type work, like commercial gigs to pay the bills. And then, you know, I, I know you've gotten funding for um, like wizards and probably some other stuff, but I always assumed like your full-time job was more um, like a little corporate and dry, but are you, is it a pretty even mix then of being able to do the passion projects? Uh, somehow it's somehow I've been able to do the passion projects almost full time and in wow. the way rather than doing like corporate, I haven't done corporate videos for, for years. Um, I will, you know, direct the odd, uh, TV commercial if I can, like that's always, you know, good work. Mm-hmm. But, um, I've been fortunate enough whereby I've been largely employed as a writer for the last few years, uh, based on, you know, some screen Australia funded productions and, uh, little, uh, directing jobs like that. Uh, so the other side jobs that I take now are sort of visual effects. Like I, I will do uh, freelance visual effects for films or commercials or bits and bobs like that. But even so, like I'll only maybe work on, on one a month uh, and it'll be just for, you know, a half a week or, or maybe two a month because uh, what's really fortunate is uh, these sorts of skills have a kind of high day rate in terms of their cost. And so you can do a couple of days here and there and really support yourself for a while whilst you're maybe trying to find the next writing gig. But um you know, as of uh, this year, I've, I've now been paid to write uh, two feature scripts and uh, a television show on top of uh, Wizards. And so they uh, they have not been, uh, the, the TV show didn't go into production, but uh, and then the other things we're kind of figuring out now. 
Um, so that was kind of full-time work for, for me for a while. Wow. That, I mean, God, that's awesome. Are you, mm, it's been really um, fun. is your role on those projects limited to writing or are you trying to get yourself involved in post or directing or potentially acting? Uh, yeah. So, I, so I'm a, I'm attached to those as director as well. Wow. <clears throat> like the, 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 the TV series was, um, straight after wizards. Uh, if anybody's seen that, uh, which was a series funded for, uh, web, uh, we were, con- I was contacted by screen Australia, who's our, you know, uh, national funding body. And they had seen some of my YouTube work and kind of said, Hey, you know, we've seen your work. You've never applied for funding. We think you'd be a good candidate if you, if you wanted to come in for it. And I sort of said, Oh, okay. And, and had this idea about this kind of like wizard comedy and, you know, brought on my friend Nicholas, who, Nicholas Issel, who's a great writer. And we kind of wrote the show together and then took that back to screen Australia. And they said, yeah, great, cool. Let's go for it. Um, and they gave us the maximum amount of budget that was possible for a web series at the time, which was, Sorry, I'm kind of going on a bit of tangent here, but I'll, That's cool. I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll bring the ship back in, me hearties. Um, <laughs> That's going to be the running theme for this whole interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a couple of buccaneers. And uh, so they, they gave us the max amount of budget, which was for a web series. At the time, I, I think about $350,000 Australian, which in American is probably probably around $200,000, $200, And the show is, is 90 minutes in length and very... Uh, visual effects heavy, very like fantasy based. And and so for say 200K American-ish for 90 minutes of fantasy, that's kind of nothing. And so, you know, we were developing it for web and we shot it, but after we had shot it, it was, as I understand it, it was just a very odd production and not the sort of thing that gets made in Melbourne, Australia, where I live. And it just kind of got around in the industry that like there was this like fantasy thing and who, who were these guys? And uh, one of our national networks got in touch and said, hey, I've heard about the show, you know, should I be interested in putting it on TV? And I said, yes. And so we sold the show to uh, to SBS2, which is um, one of our national broadcasts uh, broadcasters. And so we didn't actually change the show. It was still the same length, but they uh, they kind of picked it up as a three-part TV series as opposed to the six-part uh, web series that it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that as a way to talk about that. Um, and out of that, I then got a job with that network writing a kind of follow-up series, which was a, like a, a bigger thing. It was kind of six by, uh, six by hour long. So it wasn't a, a direct follow-up to Wizards at all, but the idea was to kind of, I guess, what like Haunting of Hill House has done now. The idea was to like second season, totally different show, different genre, but, um, same, same cast, same crew, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of the, uh, make the hot fuzz to wizards, Shaun of the dead. And, uh, so we, so I, uh, yeah, so I wrote that and that, uh, I, I actually think the scripts were, were really good and everybody was happy with them. And then, uh, SBS two comedy department basically just closed down and, and no. there was no more, no more oh, framework man. for that. But also, also the show was, was proving, the scripts I'd written were expensive and we were confident we could make it work in the same way that, you know, we made wizards work, but, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it would have been a challenge to make. And then the, the kind of department closed down and, and that was sort of that. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, um, I, I definitely want to dive into wizards because for, for those of you listening or watching, if you haven't seen wizards of Oz, uh, and it's Oz AUS, like Australia, go check it out. The whole series is on YouTube and it is one of the best web series out there. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you've seen, um, legend of Neil, have you ever seen it? This you know is what? like that, ring, that rings a bell. I, I don't know that I watched the whole thing, but I certainly I think I've seen a trailer or the first episode or something. I feel like they're like in a pretty similar vein where you can get like a little raunchier and a little like you can push it a little bit more with like a web series than you can with a lot of TV shows, and you can take 
maybe like popular culture movies or video games and kind of like, you know, repurpose them from like a fan perspective. So this is uh, Legend of Neil is like, I, I don't know, came out probably like mid 2000s or something. So the quality leaves a little something to be desired, but it was pretty awesome. And I usually like put that and Wizards in the same category. Oh, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I'm flattered, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking at the Legend of Neil, uh, uh, Legend of Neil Wikipedia page. And you know how Wikipedia will take like words and have hyperlinks? It's like the Legend of Neil is a comedy series. You can click that. And just scrolling down to the second para, uh, paragraph, it says, Neil is sucked into the game as he is masturbating and strangled himself with his NES controller. So I just like that somebody's reading the Legend of Neil page and they're like, oh, masturbating, tell me more, click. And now you go to <laughs> masturbation is the sexual simulation. Of ones I did. Uh, okay, well, cool. Thank you, oh, Legend man. of Neil. I'm learning so much. <laughs> yeah, so it was a compliment. It is, <laughs> it yeah. is a great series. And so is Wizards for those of you who haven't seen it. But the, the level of ambition that you guys took on with Wizards was immense. I think I heard 1,200 visual effect shots were packed into this series. Um, you handled a lot of the visual effect shots yourself. You, uh, I believe, did you direct the whole series too? Yeah. So my uh, my role on the series was uh, I uh, I co-wrote it with Nick. Um, I directed the whole series. I uh, was uh, I, I edited it. Me and Chris edited it, and uh, I composed all the music. I did the visual effects with Chris, and I uh, was the lead actor. Yeah. And, and I mean, I look, I did all of those roles because I love those roles and, and where I kind of came from in the first place was very much, you have to do everything or it's not going to exist. And, and as I've moved up onto bigger productions, I have, you know, been a little reticent to kind of, but I want to compose, but I still want to do this, even though yeah. it's maybe not the best choice. But um, you know, I come from this world of like completely indie, no money at all. And, you know, the, the cast that you were using and the people that you were using were just whichever friends happened to be unemployed at that time would come and kind of act it and come and kind of hold the camera or whatever. And then we suddenly have this web series budget. And even though I now think of, you know, probably $200,000 American, there's no way enough money for this series. I thought, $200,000, oh my God, I've never had so much money. And like, like, there's no way this is more money than anyone's ever had in the history of the world. But then of course, Rightfully so, you have to pay everybody because you know it's a government grant in order to you know employ people in the industry and kind of foster foster talent, and which is awesome. It's like yeah, I'm going to be able to pay everybody, but then you're looking at you know the minimum rates of things. It's like oh wow, that money is is gone so quickly. Yeah. And so a, a benefit, you know, we had to pay everybody, but we didn't have to pay ourselves, and that was kind of how we made the uh, budget work. So uh, as I said, uh, writer, director, editor, composer, visual effects, lead actor. I got paid my writer's fee and burnt the rest of it. Wow. So that was how I made that work. And I moved back into my mom's house and did the visual effects unpaid for 36 weeks. So basically a year of unpaid work uh, to get it done. Man. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and that was because I'm in a very fortunate position whereby I was able to go back to my mom's house and, you know, just eat her food and, you know, and be fine. I, I could get away with not being paid for a year, essentially. Other right. than whatever my writer's fee was. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it was a year's worth of yeah, I mean, it's such a crazy thing to think about, but I mean, you you were the writer, so you can't point the finger at anybody else and you knew the budget, right? But it's also mm -hmm. like, it, they, you, your experience with visual effects and directing and writing let you produce this thing and then their budget let you get it all the way there. But without, it, it seems like still, like it was, it was so shoestring that if you couldn't do visual effects, then you might not have been able to make the whole series work. 
Oh, I mean, no mind about it. Definitely not. Yeah. But but then it's it's a matter of what show do you want to make? I, I, I could have we could have made a web series which was you know, a housemate comedy, people, you know, sitting in their living rooms talking, but that stuff kind of bores me. I'm, I'm not into that unless it, you know, for something like that to cut through, it has to be so well-written, so well-observed uh, and nuanced. And I'm, and I'm a hack. Like, I can't do that. I just got to be like, I put in the dragon and people go, wow. Uh, so so I, I needed, I needed gimmicks, Chris. Um, but I, I've always thought of, uh, you know, going back to, uh, I, I, can, I can get into how I kind of started as well, if you're interested in that. But, but essentially, I started having to do everything myself in this very weird situation. Um, and therefore, I, I don't really delineate between the different roles so much. To me, it's all kind of like I'm filmmaking, you know, but it's not so much that I'm directing and I'm writing and I'm doing visual effects, da, 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 because I think of, and I said this on other podcasts for any uh, Michael Shanks completionists watching, um, that I think of visual effects as part of the writing process because when I'm writing, I'm not scared to go in the directions that other writers might have been taught. Don't, don't write to that because that's going to be expensive and the producers are going to shut it down. Write a cheap gag in terms of budget, not like in terms of, a, you know, creative. So, you know, that, that is to say that when writing Wizards, knowing that I was going to be doing the visual effects for free and we had access essentially to free visual effects, it, it enabled us to write wherever the jokes would take us. And, you know, we were writing like absurdist comedy. We, we were thinking of things like, um, I think it was maybe before I'd seen Rick and Morty, but like these days I would compare it as to like, that That would be the, the mind space we were in. I was seeing a lot of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I was seeing a lot of uh, Futurama, lots of like animation kind of references. Mm -hmm. And I've said before in 2D animation, it is hypothetically as expensive to write uh, a scene, uh, to produce a scene of Rick and Morty sitting on a couch as it is to put Rick and Morty in the middle of a space volcano because you just got to draw them both anyway. So, you know, whatever, budget doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But you do that in live action, you're immediately going to go, hmm, space volcano, we can't shoot this. Can you put them in a living room? And yeah. so kind of writing it with this free visual effects knowledge enabled us to have the uh, uh, unbound freedom of animation. That, that's, that's, and, and I continue that forward like when I'm writing is, is yeah, not, not shying away from tricky things. Did you dial back any shots because of the complexity of the visual effects or were you like, I'll figure it out when we get there or like get to figuring it out? Like, did you just I, I write think, it all into the script, whatever fit the best? Yeah, definitely. And, and it was a, we'll, we will just figure it out. Um, you know, the opening scene is kind of this big battle and we just thought, ah, well, we'll figure it out. And, and we kind of did you know, before we shot, I, I kind of researched into some ways to create kind of uh, fake crowd sims and after effects by making, you know, like a particle system of 2D cards of, you know, people fighting. So the idea is like, right, we're going to shoot in this uh, weird replica medieval castle that just happens to be like an hour outside of Melbourne. We have enough money for four goblins in makeup and we're shooting for, I, I think we were shooting out for two days, but the goblins, their makeup took four hours to put on and we only oh, had wow. enough budget for two makeup artists or, or two to three makeup artists. So they can only do one at a time. So if you start them really early, the first goblin's ready, you know, an hour into the shoot, but then your second goblin's not going to come until two hours after that. And we've only got one day to shoot it. So you've got almost nobody there. And, and, and so it was, it was really complicated, but figuring, you know, and, and power to the producers for, for scheduling all that so well at Late Night Films. And, you know, as we were shooting that, anytime there was a goblin that we didn't need, it was get in front of this green screen and just pretend to be fighting somebody. Grab this knight that we've got. You just have a play fight in front of that. And we yeah. were just shooting, like, uh, we had a second camera to set up static on a green screen. So we got, you know, 
50 shots of people fake fighting and then just put those onto 2D cards after mm-hmm. we keyed out the background and spread it through, you know, like a drone shot of the castle and you've got mm-hmm. kind of a, a battle scene going on. And yeah, I, I love that opening shot. Yeah, it definitely. I remember you saying something, I think it was at like the Adobe Max, like 20, 2016, I think you did an Adobe Max talk and you said you wanted to go really big with this opening shot and get it to look as blockbuster as possible because the whole idea of the show is that you're like subverting this, you know, big exaggerated blockbuster style thing. And then when you bring it into like a suburban environment, like that is the joke. So I, I really like that you figured out a way to do it and not let it look cheesy or, or garbage. Like it looks solid for sure. You don't, you don't watch it like, ah, that's, (laughs) that's crap. Like it's good. Well, thank you. Yeah. I I was really pleased with that. And and that's another advantage of, I mean, weirdly an advantage of doing it yourself. And look, when we, when we started to do the show, there was, the network hadn't come on board. So we were just like, well, let's take as long as we need in post. So so you're never pushing against a time constraint. You're just kind Mm -hmm. of, you're on a shot until you're happy with it. And then you move on. And that in and of itself is, is a real luxury, but um, you're right that that was exactly the intent that it needed to happen. That the show needed to feel uh, the fantasy stuff needed to feel legit, so that when somebody comes along and offsets that, there's actually going to be this dissonance there between hopefully kind of blockbuster feel mm-hmm. and this kind of this sort of sideways character that doesn't fit in. If you want something like a uh, scary movie, you know, epic movie, those sorts of things, or, and a lot of uh, genre-based like sketch comedy, the genre stuff is never done well because budget, time constraint, they're not really, they're often maybe more, you know, sketch comedy people, not necessarily like cinema, try and make this look awesome people. So therefore, if you're watching a sketch and the joke is it's Lord of the Rings and somebody comes along and is, you know, kind of kind of nutty with it, then um, I don't buy that it's Lord of the Rings in the first place because it's just clearly a couple of sketch comedians with like a shitty moustache on and like a mm-hmm. crappy goblin mask. And so it, there's not enough for that dissonance to kind of cut through. Yeah. Yeah, if you're already expecting the joke before it's delivered, then it's hard to yeah. make it funny. Uh, I do want to get dial it back chronologically a little bit, but now that we're kind of talking about comedy, I kind of want to dive into that because I find it a lot of people, including myself, have trouble making funny content. It could be funny on the page, but then it's not funny on the camera or it could be funny on camera, but then you get it into post and it doesn't feel right with the edit or you have the timing lined up in your sequence and everything is great. And then you try and add like a musical track or whatever, or find, find the beats for some like, like wonky audio mm-hmm. or something. And it just ruins the whole thing. Like how, how do you know when something is funny? How do you know when you have a joke that's working? Wow. That's such a, that's such a simple question, but I don't think I have a simple answer. Uh, what I most responded to as you were saying that was you put the music track under and suddenly it doesn't work. And, and that is so true. It's, it's so hard to uh, put music under comedy. That was actually a, a thing with, with Wizards, not to keep talking about Wizards, but I, I, you know, all the work that I'd done to that time really was, well, other than the kind of first thing I did, but uh, it was kind of, you know, sketch based. It was it was, we're in and out in two minutes and, and usually it was kind of genre pastiche. So it's easy like, oh, we're doing a Western scene. Okay, we've got Western music, easy. Um, so I was used to my timelines being filled with music always. And then you get to, you know, basically sitcom and you're like, what music is underneath a sitcom? And I, I, I was really stumped yeah. by that suddenly mm-hmm. because your, your brain, as you say, immediately goes to like 
well, it's pizzicato string. It's it's goofy music. But then everything sounds like Banjo Kazooie, or worse, like an insurance commercial. That's like, oh, they need to know it's funny, kids. Put in the wacky music. Uh, and and so you know, letting letting it breathe, I guess, was was interesting because it was so uh, dialogue heavy. But how do you know when something's funny? Um, I, I don't know. I I think that I I've put a lot of sketch comedy out, and I'm sort of pleased with all of it, really. But if you look at the timelines, which nobody should do, of when I release content, it's it's been really infrequent. Like I've never been somebody that's tried to turn. I've been fortunate enough to have lots of stuff on YouTube, kind of kind of go viral and, and will you know be have large audiences, and I have you know a decent subscriber base, and that's fun. But um, I will then you know make a piece of content and then not release a piece of content again for another three years, and and that's because I you know, don't really think of myself as somebody that that's, that's, you know, required to constantly be generating content. And so therefore when I can put something out, it's because an idea has just kind of beguiled me and I can go, Oh yeah, cool. I, I know that this is, this is funny or goofy. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I remember I actually worked on a TV show, a sketch comedy show over here. And, and I was tasked with uh, writing and directing and, and acting in some sketches. And, and I found that really tricky because suddenly I had this sort of, you know, sword of Damocles hanging overhead that we, where I had to deliver sketch comedy. And, and that's the thing of, I've got like, like that show, you know, came and went in, in Australia and I've got all these sketches that I'm now allowed to put up on uh, my YouTube channel. And that was always the plan. But now every time I go to do it, I think it's just not good enough. It's not to the level that I would normally hold myself to. So I don't know if I'll ever release them because mm. they're just, they're kind of fine. And you just do what everyone I, does where it's like Tim, Tim fed, channel two or like, you know, the, yeah, exactly. the other channel where it's like, <laughs> we just throw that, that would, that would be fun actually, because I mean, I don't have enough of a, a subscriber base to follow me over to a second channel, but, but because yeah, I, I never wanted to do the full-time YouTube thing, but now on stuff like COVID, I, I've started watching video game streams for the first time. And I'm like, Oh, maybe I should video game stream. That'd be fun. Oh, and I already have a subscriber base on YouTube. I could just stream on YouTube. Uh, but then I think, well, no, because that's not what that channel is. And that feels, it feels like this kind of protected area for me where I want to only put out stuff that I think of as quality, which is probably to my own behest. Cause the truth is nobody cares, <laughs> uh, but me uh, anyway. I mean, it, and so, I mean, we're on our second channel right now, right? The Craters is not production crate. This is the channel that we started because we wanted to do other stuff, but we didn't even know what else we wanted to do until I was like, oh, um, you know, it'd be cool to like interview some creators I like to just like throw in some content. And now that became the channel. I think just if you want to do something and you want to like preserve the integrity of your main channel, just start another channel and like, it'll be fine. You know, some, a lot, like plenty of your subscribers will follow you over and you'll have two different audiences, right? Like the content isn't going to be identical. So you don't necessarily need identical followers or subscribers on both channels. I say, just go for it. Yeah. It's, it wouldn't be, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Literally nothing, but I guarantee you, I won't do it. I won't do it. Even though I want to, I'll go to bed tonight being like, oh yeah, I really should do that. That is a good idea. And then I'll maybe start the process tomorrow and then just, you know, go, ah, yeah. chicken out. Yeah. I think when you get moving on, well, whatever. If you if you don't want to do it, don't do it, man. It's totally cool. I mean, Tim, no, Tim I, think my, is, I think my problem is, is that I probably do want to do it, but I won't, you know, that's yeah. the issue. I mean, you, it sounds like you're busy enough as it is anyway, like doing most things that you want to be doing. So not a big deal to let that one slide by. Maybe like 10, 15 years, we'll see those sketches. 
and maybe everyone everyone be like i'm unsubscribing from tim tim fed this is not there is one well, speaking of like 15 years time, there is one sketch that I made that I think, okay, this is actually funny. Like this, this wasn't for that show. This was me doing like what I have done in Tim to Fed videos in the past where I just had an idea and thought, okay, that's funny. And I put in all this time and effort into making the sketch and I couldn't quite think of an ending. So I burned the whole thing, but then I showed like a, a, a friend like six months later and he said like, that's the funniest thing you've ever done. You have to release it. But it has become so irrelevant to what it's referencing because the whole thing is about the trailer for Sicario 2, Day yeah. of the Soldado. And I'm trying to figure out, like, is it funnier now to release it three years after that movie was released, a, a basic, like, dissemination <laughs> of the trailer of Sicario 2, a movie yeah. that has no cultural purchase in the zeitgeist whatsoever, a completely forgotten uh, piece of media. Because also now I finally figured out what the ending of the sketch should be. And I've had it on my to-do list uh, for, for two months now to finish that sketch. But every time I start to, I'm like, well, what's the point? It's so irrelevant. It's about Sicario 2, Day of the Soldado. Maybe you can like slip that. I mean, I guess you don't want to hit people over the head with that being the joke, but you can always slip that in, you know, somehow yeah, it, make it part of the trailer. The most, yeah, antici- trying, trying the most unanticipated trailer is there a pendulum swinging about like when it's at its apex of funny based on relevance or irrelevance? I think uh, it, it would have had to have had a bigger splash to begin with to have that like pendulum effect. But if it just like ripples to nothingness, like I think Sicario 2 did, no offense to any mm. any big fans out there, um, then I, I find it hard to imagine it. it unless it was like such such a forgetful movie, you know, like if it's so far over, like, um, the rock did the movie skyscraper, which like, Mm. you know, probably costs like $400 million to produce or something. Like if you brought that up in like three years, maybe that's when the pendulum swung back. So maybe, I don't know. I think the pendulum right now to, to invent, to use this, uh, allegory is like early noughties, Nostalgia. I think like that. That's a funny place to be. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the thing about getting older. Is, is I'm um, I'm 30 next year, and uh, actually, uh, uh, great Australian comedians, Auntie Donna, who I was fortunate to work with a couple of times. Um, they. I went to one of their live shows a few years back, and uh, an Auntie Donna live show. I think it was Glenridge Secondary. Like, like if, if anybody's familiar with Auntie Donna, which a lot of people are. Um, they, they turned a lot of those sketches into the web series and, and seeing it live was like the first time I felt my teenagehood being referenced in a nostalgic way. Hmm. It was people being nostalgic for literally being in your final year of high school in 2008. And that was so funny to me because I'd never seen it done before. We'd kind of come out of this like eighties nostalgia and then a bit of nineties nostalgia. And now we're kind of like at the point whereby we're making fun of like Nelly Furtado's first record, like that, that kind of era of culture, like post new metal, like what was that, you know, static X, all this shit. Um, yeah. That's a, that, that's a kind of funny place for comedy. So uh, yeah, if I'm trying to think of like, where, what's a, where is this pendulum going in terms of like relating to older movies? It's like, I don't know, John Tucker must die. Like what's like a 2005. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like, I mean, I'm sure we're going to have all the weird cultural references from like mid and early 2000s. But it's, for me, that era is so hard to define. Like, I guess there was some early tech, but like it doesn't stand out as much as like the 80s and 90s and 
seventies and all the other previous decades. Like for some mm-hmm. reason, I guess it's, it's maybe still too close and familiar. But maybe- yeah, I agree that I don't have, I, I, what I think I find really great about the comedy though, is, is like you, I, I can't think back on that and define what was the fashion. And then I'll see a meme that's like, you know, if, you know, this isn't a meme, I'm, I'm not going to be good at improvising a meme, but it's like, you know, uh, people in 2006 be looking like this and it's a picture of somebody and, and I, and seeing that picture, I'm like, Oh my God, yes, that, that was the fashion in 2006. Mm. And I couldn't define it, but uh, you know, it's great when somebody can and you kind of go, Whoa. Yeah. I guess anyway, we've probably all had social explain jokes. <laughs> <laughs> this is comedy, everybody. <laughs> yeah. We all have like Facebook that we can dig through our old photos and probably try and spot some like odd fashion choices or I don't know, cultural references. But yeah, I, I, I will not attempt that either. <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about Time Trap. I know you did a lot of work before that, but I feel um, like that endeavor was very ambitious. It had a lot of cool visual effects. It was a short, which I know you've done a lot of before, but I think you were doing more consistently like the shorter viral video type stuff. Mm. Um, so time trap, if anyone hasn't seen it, definitely recommend it. Time trap is a comedy. There's, is there any dialogue in there? Or is there, it also, uh, no, it's, it's fully dialogue free, wow. which is, is, is quite, con- quite common amongst the work that I've done yeah. for a few reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about time trap a little bit. How did that sure. come about? Did you, you write direct, do the visual effects for all that as well? Uh, yes, that, that, that's correct. So that was, um, that came about because I had been making kind of online content for a while and it'd be going really well. And I thought, you know, I, I, I haven't really made a short film. I haven't really made like a film festival short film. And I had gone to a few film festivals and uh, I think we're in a moment culturally whereby I think people that are creators are supposed to be all about kind of optimism and about we can all do this and every creator is great. And I, I actually, I do agree with that despite what I'm going to say, but I just feel that sometimes we need to acknowledge how uh, creatively inspiring, like frustration, annoyance, and kind of like anger at crappy work can make you. And I, I basically mean that I found myself going to a lot of film festivals locally and would see like hmm, the top fil- the top short films made in Australia, and I was in the top ten, and just see like ten of the most boring short films I'd ever seen, and and you know all all pieces of uh, film content are a miracle to finish. So I'm not begrudging anybody from doing it, but uh, God, I, I just I just found like there was nothing there for me, and I think it's maybe a little more of an Australian problem, uh, whereby. I realize. No, no well, I mean, every film festival I've been, okay. I've been to some where it's like, Oh my God, finally, like some awesome shorts, but by and far the majority, I feel the exact same way. It's like this, this content, they don't care about narrative at all. There's like no story here. They expect the audience to think about their film and their project far more than the audience cares to, you know what I'm saying? Where it's like, mm. it's, to, to get the the value of their film across, they have to explain like the history of what inspired it and all that nonsense. And it's, no, you, you want to just watch something and enjoy it and not have to think through every like weird little nuance for, for like a lack of complete story to begin with. So I, yeah, I it's like, peeve, I guess. It sounds like you're describing films that uh, they consider the post screening Q and a as part of the script. 
But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so time trap was like, oh, I mean, I, I, I want to make something like really like visually complicated, really like science fiction-y, really kind of out there and really kind of push my abilities as a, as a visual effects artist, as a, a visual storyteller. It was the first time I ever did any kind of like remotely 3D work uh, was in that film. And there's not a great deal of that still. It's all mainly 2D compositing, which is kind of my, what, what I've managed to kind of flub my way uh, through a career in. But um, uh, it's essentially, it's the, it's like a castaway narrative, but um, instead of it being Tom Hanks uh, stranded on a deserted island, it's uh, an alien uh, stranded on a deserted earth. And the only tool that he has to try and fix his ship to get back home is this little device that uh, opens up. It's like a time travel device, but it doesn't work by transporting the user back in time. It transforms the space around it into how it was in the past. So it kind of opens this kind of little glowing snow globe of what the past looked like with where the object is. These little kind of exhibits in the, in the in the past, kind of living exhibits. And so that allows our character to kind of dip in and take things from the past in order to try and steer, uh, you know, fix his ship. It's a it's a very silly film. And, and I know that I've, I've opened myself up to criticism by being like, other films are crap, so I made this <laughs> film. Like, like it, it's, it, I'm, I'm not saying that the, the film's perfect by any stretch, but um, I, I wanted to make something just like really, really like, really hard and something that was really kind of audacious in terms of what can be done from a short film with no budget. Like the budget was, I think about $7,000. That was just money I had saved up and, you know, nobody was getting paid. You know, but that's what that means. You know, we, we got cameras very cheap from rental houses. We, we, we knew that kind of stuff. And uh, for example, the film opens uh, with like a two minute long kind of, uh, kind of silent comedy action sequence whereby this guy's spaceship sort of uh, veers and careens off course and, and goes through an asteroid field and he's desperately trying to, uh, you know, correct it before it crash lands on the planet. But the plot really kicks in when he's crash landed on the planet. Like it would have been easy to remove that scene altogether. But I thought, no, I want to do an asteroid chase. That'll be awesome. And, and that's what I mean when I say like I, want, I wanted it to be very like complicated. And the time travel device was something I hadn't seen before and I thought, oh, well, well, you know, let's let's try and do that. I think that'll be cool. And I think there's a an opportunity to have little moments of pathos in what is otherwise a kind of kind of silent comedy. It's kind of this like blend. I was thinking of it as like a mix between like you know old style Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, with like very modern uh, sci-fi blockbusters, kind of like you know like the JJ uh, Star Trek films and. Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. Actually, Guardians of the Galaxy hadn't come out yet. So I was going to say, it. yeah, you guys were like, a, it has a very Guardians vibe to it. I think even yeah, like we the music that you have playing, and, but it came up before Guardians. Like you guys yeah, which inspired is, Guardians it, officially right here. Michael Shanks <laughs> <was> I, saying. <laughs> I think technically it came on YouTube after Guardians, but oh, it had okay, been okay. finished because, you know, you finish it and then you do the film festival circuit and then you put it online is, is right. kind of the, the way of it. But yeah, it, it was weird. Like the... The uh, main character's helmet design is is kind of very similar to uh, the Guardians uh, Star Lord mm -hmm. helmet, um, but on the visual effects, just quickly, is uh, I was working on it and I had, you know, I, I was just doing those visual effects and I'd never done space stuff before. I was just, you know, thinking like, yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just make it work. And, and the way that I was trying to make it look as good as possible was like little weird tricks. Like I would, I had the Star Trek, the JJ Abrams, JJ uh, Abrams Star Trek movie 
I had put it into Premiere and I'd cut all the space shots and I had it in a separate timeline as I was editing it. And I was like watching them to think like, oh, how do they cut this? Where do they move the ship? If it's if it's doing a camera coming past and the you know ship coming past the camera going, <laughs> there's something about it in the Abrams films that looks really cool. Why is that? And it's kind of studying it and you realize, oh, they actually, I think they hide a cut, even though it's all digital. When the, when the ship gets close, it feels like they hide a cut, skip a few frames and they've actually reframed it in a different shot. And it gives it this like visceral like punch as it comes past mm. and looking at stuff like that you know I, I wonder if that's some form of plagiarism of less like watching exactly how the camera was moving and just kind of like well I'll just I'll just do that in After Effects on my own shot uh, and that was kind of a, a fun little uh, DIY way to, to try and uh, you know yeah. hold yourself to a really high visual standard find something where you what you want it to look like and just you know kind of go for it yeah I think that's great I'm sure mo- I, I, I believe most filmmakers or popular directors they all have influences that have like inspired their work over the years. But when they were growing up, they probably didn't have premiere. They were probably had like a VHS tape that they had to like rewind and then they went too far and they had to hit play again. So you're just doing yeah, that. We got it too easy. <laughs> yeah. Definitely speeds the process up a lot. Um, yeah. There's, there's this one shot that you have when the, uh, the guy crash lands, he's go- doing the time capsule type things. He like builds the bubbles, goes in, like pulls out. I don't want to give too much away, but interacts with them in some way. And you have one shot that looks like it might be um, like a motion controlled rig. You know, that kind of like, it's not a full 360, but it's like, how did you pull that off? That was just, there was no way we could afford a motion control rig. And I really wanted to do that shot. And and we managed to hire a, a Steadicam, Steadicam rig and a Steadicam operator. And I, I just said, let's just, let's just do it. Let's just repeat the same action. Just, just do it as best you can. And, and hopefully it'll work. Yeah. And so the, the city cam operator just did a great job and, and it more or less worked, but, but I also knew that, Hmm, because essentially what's happening is, yeah, we're doing an almost 360 orbit around a kind of uh, like sort of like energy dome in the center mm-hmm. of, uh, of this environment and what's inside the dome is a kind of mini narrative that keeps changing between three different timelines. I, mm-hmm. I think it's sort of like that. Um, and, and so we are mixing four different live action shots when trying to give it the same uh, motion. And, and so, yeah, the city came up did a great job of, of getting it very, very close. But then I, I sort of knew that, well, I'll make it work because within this energy dome, because uh, it's something that doesn't exist, I can play really fast and loose with things like uh, lensing, with distortion, uh, with kind of uh, displacement. And so more so than, look, I haven't watched that film in years, but uh, more so than I think the other shots where we see this kind of same dome effect, I really played up the fogginess of it. And I think that th- that's another thing when you're doing visual effects kind of by yourself or, or with a small team and there's no money is, no, you obviously you don't do that kind of like pixel scanning that that you do in studios where you oh that's that's technically incorrect we got to you know re- redo the shot. You have enough faith that the audience is going to be able to put it together because I think I think we do our brains naturally want to problem solve and so if you're looking at two things that are clearly supposed to be together but maybe maybe you know wobble a little bit I don't think you notice it. Yeah, I, I remember being very pleased with that because that was one whereby we didn't do tests. I never do tests. We just shoot it and figure it out later. And I, I was really surprised that that worked as well as it did. Yeah, yeah, it was, it's a very clean shot. Um, I guess I'm going to ditch my chronological order and I really want to talk more about Wizards. But recently you released Rebooted, which mm. again is a fantastic short film. And I'm 
just now noticing like a, a lot of parallels between Time Trap and Rebooted. In Time Trap, your main character has a helmet on. There's not many expressions you can see. In Rebooted, the main character is a skeleton with uh, 11 expressions that you can like swap out. In both films, there's no, um, there's no uh, audio, no, no, yeah, no dialogue. Nobody's speaking. And in both, you have to match the visual effect shots or the stop motion shots and match the perspective of like the time travel shots from Time Trap and from Rebooted, the skeleton stop motion shots to like composite together onto the plates. So it's kind of cool that you're like reusing all of these ideas that work so well, but kind of like repurposing them you know, however many years later. Yeah, I think like the, the way that I know that a project is worth pursuing uh, for me and that it also goes for the longer form ones is I, I maybe to a fault, I, I get really hung up on premises. I, I love like premise-based stuff. Like I, I love being able to distill a, a premise in a sentence down to a sentence that makes people go like, wow, I've never seen that before. That really excites me. And uh I think, you know, when you're, when you're kind of a, a creative person and you're a writer, you, you have a lot of ideas and one of the, I, but you have a lot of crappy ideas. And I think kind of the main skill is to know, you know, what do you actually want to look in the eye? What do you actually want to pursue? Because it will take over your life for such a long period of time. And, and Rebooted is this film, which is uh, the most recent thing that I put out. It came out, you know, a few months ago. Uh, and, you know, in, in short, like I, I got it down to that sentence, which was, oh, what if, um, there was a stop motion animated skeleton who is now an unemployed uh, visual effect because he's an out of date visual effect. And I thought like, yeah, that, that's, that's a funny idea. And, and using that as an, I, and, and going back to like a premise that had never been, I'd never seen before is I thought, well, then you could have create a world whereby uh, old timey, you know, uh, Hollywood creatures and characters and effects are, you know, now irrelevant, but they live in the real world and maybe they're auditioning for, for film roles. And, and you can have a world in which you can have the history of Hollywood special and visual effects uh, standing side by side in the same live action frame. So you can have a stop motion animated skeleton talking to an animatronic velociraptor, talking to an early 90s CGI character, all sitting in the same live action bar, which is something that happens in, a, in the film. And uh, and that really excited me. And that was kind of the jumping off point for, for, for that uh, that project. But yeah, that was a, that also got some funding from Screen Australia. And a funny thing with that was there was a development period whereby I, kind of, I had the idea, but I didn't have a script. And, and they gave us the money as part of this uh, initiative called uh, Skip Ahead, which is a, an initiative by Screen Australia and Google. And uh, we had, a, you know, we would go off some workshops and kind of talk about like scripting and that sort of thing. And I rewrote, rebooted the script probably more times than I've ever rewritten anything. Mm -hmm. And it, it had dialogue for the, for like eight scripts, like eight totally different stories and eight totally different scripts, but always with that same uh, out of work, uh, stop motion animated skeleton at the center. But it, it was all really dialogue heavy. And it wasn't till uh, my uh, playwright friend, Laura Lethleen suggested, why don't you just pull the dialogue out? That I suddenly thought, oh my God, like, of, of course, like that's what I do in all of my work. And suddenly pulling the dialogue out, it, it worked way better. And uh, like it worked just better on the page without dialogue, but the whole thing kind of really worked because otherwise I was getting very, very lost in jokes. It was becoming very sitcom-y because I was, you know, I was just having endless wordplay and endless like little word gags, but, but I always respond much stronger to visual gags. I, you know, I love like Pixar films. I love Pixar short films. I love animated short films. And that was re really what I was uh, thinking of with, with this, this thing. Yeah, I, I think something that a lot of 
sketch comedies or any comedies that I see, whether it's a short film festival or YouTube videos, is they don't seem to know how to do comedy in post. Like a, a, com- a comedic editing, edit, like letting the beat sit a little bit too long could be hilarious. And that's such like a weird choice to do. Like the, the editor might not, it might not be in the script. It might be the editor who like makes that joke happen or um, time trap. You have like a, a very fun, like high paced scene. I think when he's like messing with all the dials and the music's intense and then like the music cuts out for a moment and like cutting the music right then was a comedic choice. You know, it, it made that joke land and that joke doesn't exist if that music keeps mm-hmm. going, you know, it's not like funny until you, you cut the music out. Do you write those jokes into the script or do you come up with them in post-production? Well, going back to what I sort of said earlier about um, how I, I don't really, I, I think I delineate in roles a little differently than maybe other filmmakers because I, I've, I do a lot of the de- departments or or I'm involved in the departments so much Mm -hmm. that like a lot of people say when you're writing, like don't direct on the page. I I endlessly direct on the page because I'm always going to be directing this page. Mm -hmm. But um, I, when I'm directing, for example, I feel like I've already done my direction when I wrote the script and when I did the storyboards and and that's where the jokes usually are, is that I storyboard the hell out of everything. I, I draw every single uh, every single shot and I, I kind of use them more so than the script on the day. Like that's the Bible. Like I can't lose the boards. That's, that's the most important thing. And so all those jokes are in the storyboards. Cause that's when I, you know, you, you write the jokes on the page that you think are there, but then when you're drawing them out in the boards, it, it's like watching the animation. It's like watching the film. And that's when you go, Oh, I'm really, you know, I'm going to be tight for this. It'd be funny if we cut out wide and that would work. Oh, that'll work as a gag because, uh, and such and such. And when you're yeah. kind of drawing that, you might figure out, well, like in, in rebooted, there's a it's not a, it's not a great joke, but it was during the storyboard process and during the process of visiting uh, the set, scouting a bar location that I realized, huh? If we put a d- dinosaur in this bar, like I want to have, his tail would probably be whacking over the uh, the, the table next to them where there's like beers and stuff, and and like oh, then I'll make that a gag. Like there's people sitting next to them and their beers keep getting knocked over by this dinosaur's tail, and that's the sort of thing whereby you can't foresee in a script necessarily unless you you know you've got to go to the location you've got to storyboard it out um so yeah for me i I, my process is always uh write storyboard and then on the day is just just capture the storyboards and if i capture those boards then i'm then i'm good and but because we have such little budget and we're always you know our, our eyes are bigger than our stomach as it were like most of my time on set is to spit like cutting shots and be like okay we're not gonna do that oh crap but um so i suppose you know a long winded answer to your question uh, yeah, th- those jokes are kind of always there in the storyboards. Wow. You, yeah. Usually. That, that's very impressive. For So we, we do a lot of tutorials and we try and do comedy skits beforehand. And like, there's so little planning that goes into it. It'll be like 12 sentences. And most of it's just like make joke here, like insert like funny thing. And like, I for me, I'd say like any, any joke that has landed in my opinion in any of them has happened because of how we edit it in post, but we didn't really have like a clear idea of like, let's, you know, let that joke sit for a little bit longer because it'll be funnier or this joke will be funny if we cut it right away and don't let it interfere with the, um, with the flow of whatever's happening in the story. It's more like that little insert joke, which do you know what I'm talking about? I hate when, when it's, when you watch a comedy and then somebody makes like one of those side jokes 
that's not really part of the overall narrative or what's happening in the story, but then they sit on it a little too long and it ruins the whole flow. Mm. You know what I'm talking about? I, that, yeah, I absolutely I, hate I it. I think so. There's, um, I, I, um, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Red Letter Media, those guys, and they, you know, they did those, uh, oh, they, they're like uh, they're big online creators. They did those, uh, they got famous for those Plinkett reviews where they did like uh, 70 minute long reviews of The Phantom Menace before kind of long form reviewing was, you know, very uh, popular in huh. uh, on, on YouTube. And they did this review of uh, the uh, 2016 uh, Ghostbusters film, the Paul Feig uh, Ghostbusters kind of reboot remake. Uh-huh. And, um, I think they disliked the movie a lot more than I did, but a salient point that they made that I hadn't thought about was that in that movie, there's, there's no silence. There, there is, uh, because you've got these like great, like improvisational actors uh, as of the cast and Paul Feig is a very like improv friendly director. And I understand the Im- impulse that they, every scene is so clearly all the actors improvising and they're getting funny stuff there, but it, it ends up in this kind of world whereby it's constant dialogue all the time. And people are speaking over each other because they're, they're kind of performing like they're in an improv class. And, and I think there's a lot of time, you know, sometimes that works, but once he pointed it out, I was like, wow, yeah, this movie is like definitely full of just, of just endless barrage of dialogue jokes. And therefore the only jokes in this movie are dialogue jokes. There's, there's not really a great deal of visual gags. There's not a lot of sound gags. There's not these moments of, space because if there's a space and, and you're an improv comedian you're gonna go oh there's space i gotta fill it and they'll fill right. it with a with a joke but you know i i think that uh that that's a style of comedy that i am a bit sick of is is endless let's put you know three funny actors in this in this room and, and let them kind of gag off one another whereas yeah. yeah i mean what what i like to do and i'm not as funny as anybody involved in that movie is yeah really you know plan it out storyboards you know like let's let's try and capture something using uh, more than more than the dialogue here hopefully yeah yeah and it works out really well i'm like i feel like it it's so hard to produce comedy but everything you've done that's meant to be funny is very funny so congratulations well thank you (laughs) that's a funny thing as well there was um i mentioned my my friend laura before who's who's a playwright um I was breaking in a new project and I was like, oh, I was kind of stressing out to her. Like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I kind of feel like I could do it as a comedy or I could do it serious. I think it's probably tending towards serious. And she just kind of said, um, no matter what you do, you're going to make it a comedy. So just, just you know, don't worry about it. And, and that was freeing to me. And that wasn't me taking it as in like, Michael, you're so, so funny. You're the funniest man in the world. This is going to be so hilarious. But it was more like, like, don't, don't get in your own way. Like, like realizing, no, you, you have a thing that you do and you're just going to do it. So, so don't try and like fight your impulses on this thing. And that was very freeing. So, so now when I'm kind of, you know, some of the longer form projects I've been writing aren't strictly comedies, but they've still got like lots of jokes in them because I can't sort of resist. Like, I I think that that is what sort of life is. If you're writing characters in distress, when I've been in distress, I I still make jokes and people around me make jokes and you find situations funny because they're so alien sometimes when distressing things are happening that it's it's hard not to be like, well, this is insane. This is funny. Um, Yeah. I would love to see you do a horror movie. I feel like, like the best horrors always have some level of comedy in them just to like kind of lighten the mood or add a little humanity to the characters. Like a little humor in a horror is usually a very good choice. I think like yeah. in the way you seem to like do comedy and approach projects seems 
and the visual effects experience. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Do do a horror thank, thank and we'll help fund so. it. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Too, man. Uh, yeah. I think they are very similar because uh, comedy and horror and other people observe this both uh, have, they're kind of the only genres whereby they, they point towards gags, right? Because uh, uh, comedy is just surprise. You, you are leading somebody in one way and then something surprising happens and that surprise delights them. Horror is the same, but your surprise is trying to scare them. So really you're trying to lull somebody one way and then go bah and, and try and trick them. And that gets this, you know, united reaction from an audience, you know, mm-hmm. in comedy, you want to laugh um, in horror, you want to gasp, you want to shriek, but they're both just releases of tension. And, and I think they're really, uh, really linked like that. And uh, thank you for saying so, Chris, I would also like to see me uh, make a horror, but um, the people that I'm trying to get to finance my horror is a, is a, we're struggling with that a little bit at the moment, but, but we'll, we'll see. That, that, that's actually hopefully the, the next project. That would, that's the kind of, uh, that's the, that's the uh, plan that, you know, keeps falling further and further apart. Yeah, well, I hope it comes together because, yeah, that, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, a lot of filmmakers are trying to get started. Um, I mean, I think we've already pretty much covered this, but as someone who does a lot of visual effects stuff myself, how important is your experience with visual effects to being able to get these projects produced? I know we've, we've pretty much touched on this, but I... I yeah. The, well, I, I can talk about the, the downside of it in, in a weird way, mm-hmm. which, which is, is far exceeded by the outside, which is that I really, I do think of myself definitely as a, as a writer-director first. That's what I've been doing, you know, the whole time. I, it's not like I had started with visual effects and went into that. No, I, I started writing, directing, and thought, oh, if I can do these visual effects, I can, you know, kind of, kind of go for it. But then you, you do get put in a bit of a box by, by other people as, as kind of the, of the visual effects kind of guy, the visual effects director, the visual effects writer. Um, whereas, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, as, as a writer and a director, I think I have a bit more of a, of a broader toolkit. But obviously, you know, that's what happens with producers and, and finances and stuff. They, they see work and they think you can do that work again and again, uh, as opposed to other things, which, you know, which I totally understand. And, and so that is sometimes a little frustrating, but uh, it's absolutely not frustrating enough to counteract the fact that having these technical skills and mine, you know, have been in the kind of visual effects and music direct, uh, it, it, uh, directions, uh, they have helped my projects so much, helped them help me achieve things that I could never have done with the budgets that have been at my disposal and also really helped get the attention of people because they are, it's, it's eye catching It's you know, in a shallow level, it is kind of glossy to have kind of big visual effects based stuff. And if you're trying to cut through uh, the noise of everybody now can have a camera and, and can do stuff, it, it is, you know, maybe it's a cheap trick, but it's a, it's, it's a trick nonetheless. Yeah, I was, um, you, you might be familiar with like David F. Sandberg. He's, he did, mm, yeah. um, cool. So I, I was watching one of his YouTube videos, which he, he maintains his YouTube channel, which I find. I know, awesome. I've, I've probably seen it. I, I, I love his, uh, I love his post studio success YouTube videos. They've been great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, he was talking about the visual effects on the feature film Lights Out. And mm. he didn't do all of them himself, obviously. He had like, you know. He did some. some he did some to Blender. But he did yeah. some, exactly. And he did some that maybe weren't like the most flashy, but he knew he was able to do it and he knew it would add to the overall story. So like his, you know, his level of visual effects might not be equivalent of like a VFX house with like 10 people doing, but he was able to do it, save the production budget to like not pay for that other stuff and like use his experience to 
to help his story out, which I thought was really cool. I haven't really heard any Hollywood director talking about that same, like, you know, indie visual effects experience working on a blockbuster film. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if, like, Gareth Edwards, you know, did any of that on a Rogue One or something like that, or on a, on a Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, that's Gareth Edwards, right? There's also Gareth Evans. There's two similar directors came up at the same time. I don't um, know. I think I recall from that video that uh, it was challenging to convince either the studio to let him do it, or it was quite hard for him with the post house to just like deal with the deliverables yeah. because they're not set up to do that, that it is such a rare thing. And um, yeah, I can imagine that being a little frustrating. Yeah. I remember that he said he did have to put a, a chunk of the budget to just getting the film to like work off of. Because yeah, because the they, they, they worked on proxies and he needed the roars. And, and that's the sort of stuff. And I've encountered that, uh, you know, kind of working on bigger productions as kind of uh, one of a few sort of, I say VFX houses, but, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of a, a freelancer. But, um, but, yeah, it's like, oh, can I get this shot? And they say, no, because we don't have our assistant editor on. They will come back on next Thursday and that's when you'll get the shot. And I'm like, well, it's just on a hard drive, right? Can't you just yeah. send Copy, me this file? Like, get it done. Yeah. Dropbox exactly. That, that feels like a thing that in the total indie gorilla world is insane. You just, you just go get the hard drive or somebody at the office sends you it, but when it, it can get kind of locked away and there's probably good reasons or perhaps it's kind of uh, vestigial from a, from a post, from a pre-digital era or something like that, whereby sometimes uh, the files can be really under lock and key by some of the post houses. I wonder, I mean, yeah, maybe it is just like a security thing, but part of me does feel like it's just this old archaic system that nobody has decided to change up for some reason. Um, but I mean, it's also why people like you are able to produce such awesome content that, you know, can be comparable to much higher budget stuff because you you don't have those restrictions and you don't, you maybe were never taught, no, this is the right way to do it. You're not allowed yeah. to like send it to the visual effects artist until there's like approval on this page or whatever. So it's cool that that red tape doesn't really exist for you. Yeah, exactly. And then, but we're all like, oh, I hope I get to a place where all that red tape does exist for me. That'd I don't know. I, I felt like that for a while and more and more, I'm just like, ah, if it's going to stress me out mm. and I don't know if it would ever be worth it to work on something that's like that big budget. If it, I just feel I mean, like all creativity stripped away and I'm, you know. I think back to that, that Sandberg video, like I, I really relate to how he, how he, you know, did those effects on, on lights out, which was a studio film. Um, I, I would feel because I'm so used to doing my own effects and, and being like, or basically touching, you know, every single shot in something like rebooted, like, I would feel like I wasn't doing my job, which is, which is a thing I think I need to overcome. Like as a director, as I, as I hopefully can work on kind of bigger things uh, is that the job of a director is, is to delegate, but you, when you're in the indie world, you don't have that ability. Um, I, I recently directed something that I, that I didn't write. And that was kind of, a, that was a bit odd, but then also I didn't, I didn't score. I didn't do the, composing to it and I, I was I was really reticent to let it go because oh I always do the score and, and this was going to be kind of a fun genre to do the score and but it just wasn't going to work from a time point of view and and I we ended up working with this composer and oh my god they did such a better job than I would have done and it was awesome and I really enjoyed like uh I you know it's weird you kind of have this feeling of like well if I don't 
do the score, then it's not mine. But of course, your job as the director is to guide the composer and, and give them notes and, and help develop it. And it's not yours, it's not theirs, it's the projects. You kind of work on it all together. It's And it's that sort of collaboration that's, uh, yeah, uh, awesome. And, and so I suppose, you know, that's something that is to not be super scared of. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, that's well said. And obviously any big film is going to take more than one person to get it done. Uh, but it is pretty amazing that you compose and direct and write and act is, is the acting like you're, you're a solid actor too, but oh, I know you. a you're lot the first of people person who ever say that <laughs> you are, you are, you nail a lot of, a lot of the comedy. Um, but like, why, why are you acting in your stuff? Um, it's, it's, it's really like all the other stuff. It's, it's just how I, um, well, the, the way that I absolutely began in filmmaking and I'll, I'll keep this quick is, uh, I was in my final year of high school and I was kind of, you know, like looking into, I was realizing, wow, you can like learn visual effects at home. You know, Andrew Kramer was like, you know, kind of blowing my mind and, and, and all that stuff. And I was a theater kid. I was like, uh, I was a theater captain at high school <laughs> and I'd do all the school plays and, and I just like loved that. And I was, you know, uh, in, in high school, you can, you, when you're doing um, the top level theater, we, you have to do acting, but you can also choose another craft. And I was choosing directing. So I was, you know, kind of directing a bit of theater in, in a in weird high school way. But um, I was going on this video game website called uh, The Escapist Magazine. And they had a uh, film festival competition. And they said, hey, you know, uh, submit a, a video for this film festival. And the uh, prize is a contract turning that video into a series. So essentially wow. submit a pilot. And I thought, I reckon I could do this. Like, I think I'm kind of funny. I'm doing this theater stuff. I'm looking into this, you know, kind of filmy stuff. I just bought myself a, 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 a mini DV camera because I wanted to, to do media in high school as well and make okay. a little short film. And so I made this five minute long kind of action comedy thing. And, and it won, it won the film festival. So I was 17 wow. and I had this contract all of a sudden with this American gaming website saying every fortnight we're going to pay you to produce an action comedy piece because that was the pilot that I'd made. Uh, and, and so straight out of high school, I, I thought, okay, cool. I'm not going to go to university. I'm just going to do this. And so I, I spent 18 months making fortnightly uh, action comedy sort of stuff. And, and it was like very, I was, I was going for like, like, spaced i was going for monty python it was like absurd but like very like visual very like genre savvy mm -hmm. look and it was made by a 17 to 19 year old so it was it's probably crap i've never gone back to rewatch it but uh it was called doomsday arcade on the escapist magazine and that was how i kind of cut my teeth and that was this is this is all a long-winded way of saying like that's why i had to do everything myself I, like there was no industry people involved at all. It, it was just my friends that were taking gap years would come along and help. So I had to learn how to shoot, how to edit, how to do this, how to do that. And I was the lead actor in that show because, well, I'd done theater and I was always free. I, I was always going to be available when I was shooting. And as I started making kind of Tim Tim Fed content, that was just the thing. It's like, oh, I, I, I'm not an actor. I, I don't aspire to act, but I can, I know what I can do. And I can kind of do this, like, like this is sort of in my wheelhouse. And then hmm. I don't have to you know, bug somebody else to come and waste their time on it. So I'll just do it. And then with wizards again, like it was, it was definitely something that I wanted to do because it was fun, but we didn't have to pay the lead actor when you don't have a lot of money. Like I think if we had paid the lead actor, that would have been $20,000 of the budget, you know, almost a 10th of the budget or something. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's little decisions like that, but I'd also be lying if I said, I, I don't, didn't, don't really enjoy like, you know, putting on costumes and being a goofus, but, uh, I, I don't know if I will, uh, I don't know if I will act again. We will see. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was curious, like 
because you're so attached to these projects in a lot of ways, they're they're You have a lot of ownership over them. Mm-hmm. I would assume you would feel more comfortable being behind the camera as opposed to being in front of the camera. Cause that that's where, I mean, obviously the control happens on both end and the end result is a combination of the two, but I feel like, yeah, for a writer director, the comfort level would be back behind the camera. Definitely. That, that's where I feel at home because I like guiding a, a project because, you know, I can see a project in my head long before we shoot it. And, and so you know, it's behind the camera that you really have the most control over that stuff. But, but, you know, also to, to be quite honest, like I'm, I'm a show off really. Like I, I'm like, I, I am a show off. I like kind of performing. I, I like, I, I, I hate to say it, but I suppose I like being the center of attention. So I, I am comfortable in front of the camera. I, I do enjoy, uh, if you see me on set directing, my directorial style is very, uh, you know, it's, it's very, I try and be very fun. I try and keep sets kind of lively and, and silly. Uh, so, you know, sitting in front of the camera isn't, isn't, is, is a place I'm happy to be, but I don't know that it results in, in great results all the time. All right. Uh, we got some speed questions before, but before I get there, I have one question for you. Um, if you had, let's say, let's say $5 million budget to either do a feature film or a 12 episode series, which would you be more drawn to doing just based off of that information? Uh, I, I would definitely do the feature film hundred percent. Uh, I am, I'm feeling, you know, a little alienated because, I am, I'm not much of a TV guy as a, as a consumer of media. Like I, all of my friends, none of my friends watch movies anymore. I, I think, you know, it's all, it's all series. It's that, that's the kind of style. Um, you know, my, my girlfriend, she watches, you know, TV. She's rewatching Game of Thrones right now. I never watched Game of Thrones because I was like, oh, it's, you know, I've seen bits and bobs of it and I kind of know everything that happens, but I, I panic about the length of it. It's so much time. It's such a huge time investment, but I, uh, and people say that about movies, like, oh, you sit down and watch a two-hour movie. I'm like, well, well you, you will over a weekend watch 11 hours of television. Yeah. I, I like sitting down and in two hours, I have a whole story. I have the beginning, I have the middle, I have the end. Obviously, that has its downsides. You can really uh, examine stuff, uh, you know, through a magnifying glass on television because you've got time for stuff to breathe. But I have found so often that I, when I have watched TV, I feel like the goal of the TV show is to exist for as long as possible and to string you along as long as possible and to keep a plate spinning for as long as possible. That's a huge generalization that isn't true of so many television shows. But um, so often I feel like TV is not making the most of its runtime, but a movie, it's like you got two hours and you've got to go for it and you got to finish that story. And, and the sort of stories that I you know, uh, write and like to tell you know, have a beginning, a middle and an end. And I want them to exist and then I want them to be over. And so mm-hmm. definitely film that. That's, that's where I go. Okay. Good answer. All right. Let's do some speed questions, Michael. Let's do it. Uh, what is the most common mistake you see newbie filmmakers making, or maybe the most mm. common mistake that gets to you? That gets to me. And I, I, I want to make clear, I'm not saying that everything should be like very mainstreamy and very blockbustery at all. But I do think that people should put themselves in the shoes of an audience member more. I think it's easy to forget that somebody's going to watch this and, and you actually want their attention to be held. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, explosions and dragons, which is kind of my hacky bag of tricks, but just like, give me something to engage with straight away. You know, give me, like, give me a, an awesome opening shot. Give me something really dramatic that happens right up front or something you know, super mysterious right up front. And a lot of indie indie stuff that I see, I feel like doesn't respect my 
doesn't respect an audience's time. You know, like, like that's, that's the most important thing is just holding their attention. And, and, and it's so easy for people to tune off and, to, and uh, you know, switch over. If you're online, if you're on YouTube, there's literally an infinite uh, amount of content they could be watching other than this right now. So, so you've got to choose, you've got to get them on the hook quickly. That's, that's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Uh, what is one of your favorite comedy movies? Uh, I think my favorite movie of all time might be Hot Fuzz. That feels too modern to say because no it's, way, you know, man. Hot Italian. Fuzz is great. Yeah, it's it's just so great. It does everything that I love, which is it um, you know parodies a genre whilst also being a great piece of that genre. It, it is full of visual jokes. It is full of uh, non dialogue jokes. Uh, I've watched it thirty times and I'm still finding new things in it, new uh, uh, sort of rhyming beats, rhyming scenes, symmetrical moments. They do that probably very dumb thing of, they write sometimes in that and Shaun of the Dead, they will write punchlines for jokes before they write the setup. So you literally have to see it a second time before you understand like, wow, that's it's so well thought through. Um, I, I just, I love it. I, I think it's amazing. What do you think of World's End? I like it a lot. Um, I, I think it's the lesser of the three, but it almost seems to be like, there's something about it that I wonder if it's a bit of a metatextual comment on like, we don't really want to do this anymore. And, and I don't think that that means that they didn't try because they, they absolutely try. And I think the movie like rips, I think it's awesome. But it's like they're sending off the Cornetto trilogy because it's combining like the shambling mass of antagonists from Shaun of the Dead mm -hmm. in the kind of, you know, Android hive with the uh, blockbuster action meets small town uh, premise of Hot Fuzz. So knowingly, we kind of combining the first two movies as well as it being about a friendship group that's literally trying to uh, recreate a perfect moment from their youth, which could be, you know, their early films, their early success and realizing the futility in that that what you actually are going to do is like forge ahead into a new world, which literally happens, spoiler alert of the film, they cannot uh, recreate this moment from their lives. They literally say bye-bye to their younger selves and the world ends and they are forging ahead in this new kind of uh, apocalypse uh, where Nick Frost is recounting the story of the film to kids. And it feels like a handoff moment of like generationally, we did this, the moment is over. We are in the scary apocalyptic landscape that is adulthood. And we will now tell you our stories and pass over for the next generation to, to go ahead. I, I think there's like beautiful stuff in it like that. But on the flip side, also the, the main character, forget his name. Gary King. Gary King. Yeah. He he's thriving in the apocalypse. Like he did kind mm. of find his childhood again at the end and is like, you know, happy to wreak havoc, move on from it. I think that movie has some of the best comedic action that I've seen in any film. The bathroom mm. fight scene is is just one of the funniest sequences. So, well, the, 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 and there's, I think, a really underrated sequence in the middle of great action, which is it's a huge kind of bar fight scene. And I, I think mm -hmm. I have one very minor technical issue with it, which is it it's stitched together to look like a one shot take, but it's, it's very clearly not. Yeah. yeah. I don't think they, they do. They do that surprisingly not perfectly. And for an Edgar Wright film, everything else is always so perfect. And I, I think that the lens choice is wrong, but that's me being a dick. But there's a gag, this whole big bar fight's going on. And, and Gary King is just trying to preserve his pint glass. Uh -huh. And he keeps, keeps getting put into these uh, situations where he's beating people up, but holding his pint glass and is switching hands and different people are taking it. And the pint glass stays full, you know, for almost all the scene until it finally is, you know, spilt. And it's, it's the most like Jackie Chan, 
uh, scene in a in like in, in a British movie. It's it's so funny and it's so good and it's so it's very Jackie it, Chan. It's, it's everything I love. Of like, wow, this would have been so hard. It would have been so easy to just have. There's a bit of a fight and they move on, but like, no, it's so complicated and it's so worth it. And and I, I love seeing that on the screen. Yeah, yeah, great example. Um, do you know what Legolas's last name is? I I don't. I, don't I didn't either until I looked it up. I was curious. I thought it'd be a good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I I should know this. I, I you know basically made a show parodying uh, parodying Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but no, I, I I don't. I mean, his his dad. What's his dad's name? We see him in the Hobbit film. Uh, he's played by Lee Pace. I wonder if um, he. No, I don't know. Please inform me. It is Greenleaf. Greenleaf. Okay. Kind of underwhelming, right? Yeah, I mean, Legolas is just more imaginative. Greenleaf feels like a first pass of like, he's natural. So, you know, green leaf. Yeah, it's like a a teen fantasy book kind of name where it's like that or even like child. It's it's very, very simple. I guess they're elves. Maybe they're all Greenleaf. But but yeah, they're, they're two correlated those the two halves of that name it's like calling uh somebody uh jackson sky cloud it's like well you've already got the sky in here you don't need the cloud you've already got the green you don't need the leaf <laughs> that's my take uh do you know how many bones are in the human body uh not enough i look mm. forward and dream of a world where we are all bone nothing but bone we become calcified <laughs> in our recalcitrance and uh, <laughs> um no i don't uh, i i okay i'm gonna guess and i'm gonna be embarrassingly wrong Oh, I'm gonna here. go. I'm gonna go. Wait, do teeth count as individual bones? Oh man, I don't think so. Okay. I'm gonna say no, okay. but okay. I'm gonna say seventy-five. Ah, two hundred and six. Well, there you go. You could have but, gone with know, like five or like six thousand. So you're still I like in a reasonable range. I think they were counting teeth, and that we have hundred and thirty odd teeth. I, I reckon that's. So I was right. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Checks out. Yeah. More teeth than I thought. Uh, yeah. You do seem to really like skeletons based off of all your work. You got, yeah. Well, you, you've got one right behind you. Yeah. I, I threw that back there for you. That skeleton. And so, oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, I didn't even notice that somebody pointed that out to me, which seems mm. very stupid of myself that I didn't notice that every piece of work I do is very skeleton based. And it's honestly not intentional. I don't think of myself as somebody who loves skeletons, but I, I obviously must because they, they do find themselves very prominently in all of my work. You know, with things like Rebooted, it was really because, well, if it's about an out-of-date visual effect, like what's the oldest and like most iconic? Mm-hmm. And obviously it's the, uh, the Ray Harryhausen uh, skeletons just really jumped out to me. It's, it's like, well, of course it should be that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I really like Coco. I guess I love skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're in that's some fantasy world and you guys are going to go raid a uh, a vampire camp and mm-hmm. it's nighttime so you know they're they're awake they're not like susceptible to the sun what weapon would you wield for that let's say there's 12 of them uh, four of you okay let's say let's say eight of you 12 of them even the odds a little bit more well, the, the first thing that pops into my head is from the uh, very not good Van Helsing film where uh, David Wenham is, it's, you know, Van Helsing, obviously famous vampire hunter from, mm-hmm. from uh, myth or myth or literature, right? It's more, it's not really myth, is it? It's, it's Bram Stoker or... I feel like myth would, could come from literature. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but they, they kind of made Van Helsing kind of like James Bond of, you know, fantasy creatures. And he has a Q, which is uh, David Wenham's character. And I think if memory serves, I saw that in the cinema and I think I've seen it since he invents a like Gatling crossbow. It's like a machine gun crossbow, which shoots <laughs> out, uh, you know, either, either crossbow bolts or maybe they're little stakes because he's a vampire hunter. And that's what right. I'm thinking is I want like a, a fully automatic crossbow that shoots wooden stakes because, yeah. you know, a stake to the heart kills a vampire. You just go, done. Right. Easy. Yeah. Like I'm not sure if I'm allowed, but, uh, you know, I, that can exist within this fantasy Yeah, yeah. World. I gave you the choice of any weapon that you wanted. <laughs> and I guess that's a weapon, a Gatling gun that shoots stakes. I mean, would, would a bullet not work if it's just destroying the heart? Can't you just shoot the heart then? Well, specifically, it's, I mean, just so much fuss is made about wooden stakes that I feel like there must be something, you know, to that. I just uh, although bullets, I think they want to be silver because uh, silver might bullets just be also... for werewolves, though, right? Yeah. I, I, it, it's most associated with werewolves, but I, I think I, I certainly have seen, you know, played, you know, fantasy video games of, you know, kind of gothic fantasy and mm. gothic fantasy literature whereby still silver is the thing that, that you want to... Uh, Okay. To do for monster hunting. I think if you like have a crucifix made of silver, you can use that to like burn the flesh of a vampire. I think I've seen that in something. Okay. So maybe yeah. a Gatling gun that shoots silver crosses. Silver crosses. Yeah. yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Just like ninja stars <laughs> zipping around. Uh, if you could communicate with any animal, like the whole, whole species of animal, what animal would you talk to? Well, the boring answer, which is probably the real answer would be, uh, cats or dogs because they're they're so around um and i mean i love my cat i would love to be able to talk to him uh and if i have a relationship uh you, more so than he lets me pet him when he lets me or otherwise he just bites the shit out of my hand yeah um and similarly with dogs i, I don't i you know well, so many of my friends have dogs i reckon that will be pretty cool and you can actually have an ongoing relationship with however when i have thought in the past of if i could have any animal familiar and this is a slightly different question. I really want a big crow. I want a giant crow. Yeah. I think that'd be awesome. A crow that I could ride like a horse, a horse sized crow. Big crow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very big crow. I just We're still in the fantasy world with the vampires and your Gatlin <laughs> gun, just riding this yeah, exactly. giant crow. <laughs> yeah. Straddling this crow, like a Valkyrie shooting at these vampires. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's the horror idea. I love it. Uh, have you done much traveling in your life? Uh, yes, I, I, I've been very fortunate to travel. I'm, I, I live in Australia and I've lived here since I was 12, but um, I'm from New Zealand. So uh, I've traveled a lot back and forth between New Zealand and Australia. But um, in, in recent years, and it's funny in COVID time, because obviously we, uh, we can't travel anymore. Last year was the biggest year of travel that I've ever done. I, I went to uh, America and traveled a little bit around uh, Texas and California. Hmm. And then... Um, I also went, God, like last year was this crazy year. I went to Italy. I went to Poland. I went to, uh, wow. gosh, where else? Germany um, and and Fiji as well. I, I traveled so much that I, I actually had an opportunity to fly for, uh, to visit France uh, for free on, on, a, on a festival trip. And I had just come back from this American trip and I, I just couldn't do it. And, and I, I felt like, what sort of an asshole am I that I'm, you know, saying no to this, this trip. But um uh, I, it was just the first whispers of COVID coming through. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a massive hypochondriac. Like that, that's a big issue for me. Mm -hmm. And I knew if I travel right now with even the faintest whispers of a pandemic, and it was well earlier before we knew what was going to be the reality of it, um, I'm definitely just going to be panicking the whole time. So, uh, wow. so, so I, you, I, 
I, I said no, please, to this free trip to France. And I, well, I managed to convince my uh, my producer from Late Night Films, uh, Nick Collar, to, to go in my stead. So it wasn't a wasted opportunity. Okay. And just I, I, I you know, gave it to him. And I think he would have enjoyed it much more than I would have anyway, because he wasn't going to be, you know, crippled with anxiety the whole time. Did he get a go or what did COVID get in the way? Of I know he, he did it. it. It was so early. Like it really was just the, like the the earliest stuff for it. I was just convinced that I was going to get trapped in France and, uh, wow. or something, but, um, yeah, he, he managed to go and he managed to come back and that was fine. I reckon it was probably a, a month later and it wouldn't have happened. Cause it was also you were real film. early with hearing those whispers. Then you're like on some Chinese forums, like seeing all the early stuff. Yeah, well, I feel like for it us, it was like, I hear about one week ahead of time. And then the next week, everything's just shut down. I'm totally. Wow, no, I feel it. like it was, it was on the news for, for a little while in the same way that, but in that kind of ambient sort of swine flu way, uh, you know, if you remember that, where it's like, oh, it's it's the biannual. Uh, there's a scary virus. It's probably right. not going to go anywhere. But mm-hmm. but um, it was just it was just getting bad, I think, um, or, yeah. or just just warming up. So yeah, I, I've been very fortunate to to travel uh, a lot and you know some more places. But um, and and if, if I feel like I somehow cosmically like got a lot in under the line before it's going to be really difficult to do for a long time. And, you know, ecologically thinking ahead, it's probably not a good thing to do. Like definitely wanting to restrict any air travel that I do for, for reasons of, of that. There was a, uh, yeah. you know, greenhouse gas calculator or, or something like that where you calculate, you know, what size is your house? Um, uh, you know, what, what car do you use? How often do you use public transport? How often do you fly? And it would, and it gave you a stat of how many planets we would need to survive if everybody lived your life. And I did that. Okay. And I think it was like seven planets. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I, I think, uh, and I was low in everything else because I don't drive and I, you know, I, I catch public transport if I'm moving around. Uh-huh. But um, I'd just been flying so much that specific year that I did the test. I thought, oh, I can't do this. This is very bad. Wow. Yeah, big guilt trip. I mean, mm. it sucks because like traveling, you feel like you're you're being somewhat cultural and aware of the world and meeting different people and you're a better person because of it. And then it turns out that like you're destroying the planet and you should just yeah. stay home. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because it is, it's, it's the, there's nothing like it. It is, it is incredible. And, and also like what a privilege of, of our generation to be I think we've all probably traveled a lot more than our parents did or certainly more than our grandparents did mm-hmm. because of the, uh, economically it's so much cheaper to fly than it was certainly for like, you know, I think like my grandma took one trip and that was, you know, like that was that she went to China once and that was like the holiday you would take. Mm. Yeah. Uh, very different these days. Uh, if you had to choose between a nose ring and the, I'm talking like, like not a stud, right? Like a ring, mm-hmm. a yes, nose ring. Oh yeah, I guess, I guess I'll let you choose whether you do like on the side or septum, Mm -hmm. like in the middle or a lip ring. So you got, I guess you got four options with that. Okay. And you, you have to wear any time you leave the house rest of your life. I would definitely do nose. Definitely nose. Yeah. Are you going Um, septum then? I seem pretty on board with that. Well, the thing is like, I, I, I don't have piercings, but so my, my impression is just who do I know that has piercings and which of them do I think are cooler? And yeah. my friend Sam has a septum piercing or did, he doesn't anymore. And I'm like, oh, Sam's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I, I could probably do that. And then I think of like my male, male people I know that have lip piercings and they're a lot more like, I don't know, like techno than me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like that would be the scene for me. They're a lot more techno kind of hardcore whilst I'm like, yeah. It's definitely a statement if you have a lip piercing or a nose piercing. 
I feel yeah. like lip lip was. I, I would cool. really prefer to have none, to be honest. <laughs> it's not an option. <laughs> I know. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for doing this interview. Can you tell our viewers and listeners where they can find your work? Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so I make work, uh, uh, put it online under the name Tim Tim Fed, T I M T I M F E D, and uh, yeah, that's that on YouTube and on Twitter and Facebook and stuff. That YouTube's kind of the main place to find me. Or Twitter, if you want to come say hi, ask some questions. That's uh, that's where I'll be. Uh, thanks, Chris, for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, great talking with you, Michael, and I, I look forward to seeing those projects. I really hope that horror project gets in the works again at some point. Cause yeah, that's great. If you've got a few awesome. mil and you want to send it this way, feel free. Actually, yeah, <laughs> if anybody's got a few mil and to send it my way, <laughs> at TimTimFed on Twitter, um, I'll give you my PayPal. You can just put it in there. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Good luck thanks, with that. Chris, yeah. See you, man. Thank you for listening. And remember to make it awesome.